Welcome to Category Visionaries, the show dedicated to exploring exciting visions for the future from the founders who are on the front lines building it. In each episode, we'll speak with a visionary founder who's building a new category or reimagining an existing one. We'll learn about the problem they solve, how their technology works, and unpack their vision for the future. I'm your host, Brett Stapper, CEO of Frontlines Media. Now let's dive right into today's episode. Hey, everyone, and thanks for listening. Today, I'm speaking with Prakash, co-founder and CEO of Axano, a no-code backend development platform that's raised $5.4 million in funding. Prakash, thanks for chatting with me today. Hey, thank you so much, Brad. I'm uh, happy to be here. No problem. Super excited to chat. So to kick things off, can we just start with a quick summary of who you are and maybe just a bit more about your background? Sure. So yeah, I grew up in Southern California. I have been in tech in some flavor or some form for most of my life. Most notably, I spent a bunch of years at Google. Uh, I came over from a Picasa acquisition. I don't know if you remember Picasa, but organization software. It eventually became Google Photos and then did UX at at, uh, Google for a while. And then after that, uh, some startup experience and that led us to today. A few questions we like to ask, and the goal here is really just to better understand what makes you tick. First one is, what founder do you admire the most, and what do you admire about them? So I personally really like Brian Chesky of Airbnb. I know that it might be a pretty common choice, but I just admire that he had a design background because I'm formerly a designer. And I really like his system's way of thinking, how he sees the world and how he's a very like horizontal thinker. I think he has really improved himself from traditional like you know, just form design and now understands all the different systems and the designs of organizational structure. And he thinks about running the company in that way. Nice. Yeah, he's such a fascinating entrepreneur. And because he worked at Google there and what was it, I think 2004, can you just tell us what Google was like back then? Yeah, so that was the most crazy time to be at Google. It was like the number one company in the world, bar none. It was a very exciting time to be there. And it was really just kind of a time where a lot of amazing products that we all use today was being born, really. So when I was there, you know, Gmail was just coming out of invitation only. Google Calendar was being designed. And a lot of these properties around like basically what was forming and shaping our tech ecosystem were being built. So it was just, uh, it was really amazing. I joined the company when it was like 1400 people. So much smaller than it is today. Was it clear back in 2004, how big Google was going to be? Man, you know, I'd like to think that I knew it was going to have a very big impact. And that's frankly, because even at 1400 people, it was having a global impact. But I just I don't think anyone could have anticipated how big the company could get and the number of verticals that it could enter into. What was like the highlight, would you say, of working at Google in your time there? You know, I just think uh, it's always the people. I got to work with some amazing people that really just inspired me. I was very lucky. Google was effectively my first job out of school. And so I came in with a lot of imposter syndrome. I didn't really know much about anything. I was just a visual designer, but I think I really was able to grow up there and be mentored by just a lot of amazing leaders. And, you know, Google just facilitated such an amazing work environment and all the benefits and things that you read about. So it was just like really getting paid to, to learn under really, really intelligent people. Another question that we like to ask, and, and this one is about books. And we took this from Ryan Holiday, who's a, an author that I really like, and he calls them quake books. So he defined a quake book as a book that like rocks you to your core and just really influences how you think about the world and how you approach life. Do any quake books come to mind for you? 
Well, sorry. Uh, since you are mentioning Ryan Holiday, I know one of the books that you know he talks a lot about is Atomic Habits, right? And that's by James Clear. And I think the thing I like so much about it, and I know a lot of people reference this book, is there's a quote that says, every action that you take is a vote for the type of person you want to become. So I would say that's number one. And I think the second is Extreme Ownership by Jocko Willink. And of course, the quote that I like there is that discipline equals freedom. So, you know, those two books, it's really just around how to be more productive, how to really execute and shape your life through action. Sounds like you and I read the same stuff and, and follow a lot of the same people. Those are uh, two of my favorites as well. Have you read the latest book from Jocko Willick? It's actually called Discipline Equals Freedom. No, I actually have not read that book. So he actually wrote a book with that quote. That's so funny. But uh, yeah, I just absolutely love it. And I, I just really live by that. I think in such a simple statement, you kind of just embodies everything that you need to really be successful in life, in your finances, in your physical health, et cetera. Yeah, totally agree. You'll have to check out that other book from him. It's more of like a coffee table book. It's more of like kind of like a daily reader, I guess is how I would describe it, where it's not, you know, this like long story. It's essentially just like the best Jocko quotes and like mini rants on a specific topic. And then you just move uh, through the next. So if you're into yeah. the, the first book, you'll love this one. Oh, absolutely. I can't wait. I'll definitely get it. Nice. Now let's switch gears and let's dive a bit deeper into the company. So how we like to start this is just really focused on the problem. So how do you articulate the problem that you solve? Yeah. So the problem that we solve, if you think about the industry at large today in tech, there's really a constraint on engineering resources. They're either too expensive, they're not available, or the engineers that you have are focused on the core roadmap. But what ends up happening is, you know, stakeholders and product owners, they have their own projects and this causes a backlog because the engineers just can't get to them. So they need tools to basically build the software that they need themselves, but they need those tools to be enterprise ready. And so there's lots of no code tools that they previously used, like Zapier and Airtable, et cetera, but they may not necessarily scale to what their organization needs. And that's kind of where Xano has been born and the problem that it solves is just basically unblocking these product owners to be able to build without limitation. And take me back to 2018 when you were first starting. You know, what was it about this problem specifically that made you say, yep, that's it. I'm going to build a company around this because I'm sure you had you know, different options. There are probably a lot of different problems you could have gone after. What was it about this problem? Well, you know, I kind of mentioned the organizational problem, but just broadly speaking, I think software development, especially around engineering, has always just been opaque, right? You have to learn how to code to really get a piece of software off the ground, which obviously makes sense. But as a failed startup founder, my first startup, the constraint was the engineering resource. And I spent a lot of time and money in trying to build my own product. So over time, after that kind of went into the ground, I saw this cresting and growing uh, no-code space to help solve this problem. But there was always kind of this stigma where no-code could only do so much. You should only build your MVP. You have to hire custom developers when you want to build something of consequence. And so when I realized that there was an opportunity to create something alongside a friend of mine to address the scalability, security, and compliance areas of no code, I thought we could have, and we are proving that we have something special. How have you seen no code evolve? I, I feel like 2018, was that kind of the early days of that term being used? No. So no code has existed even far before that, even going back to like Dreamweaver and your WYSIWYG editors, right? So no code has been around for quite a while. And it's really just an abstracted layer on top of code to help you, you know, get things done and build simple things. 
So over time, you know, these prototypes have turned into more and more consequential things that people could end up building. So we serve a market called, I'll just broadly umbrella them, it's called the citizen developer. You can think of them as like a product owner of some sort that is a systems thinker, but doesn't know the syntax of software creation. So over time, they've basically been able to build more and more on their own. And in today's world, we're part of this next generation of no-code tools where you can build anything without limits. Do you find it hard to stand out in this space? I know I see no-code everywhere these days. So maybe that was my reference there in like 2018. And like there's some time around there, it seemed to be like TechCrunch was just full with every company, you know, using this phrase and, and using this terminology. Do you ever find it hard to stand out and separate yourself from all the others who are also talking about no code? I mean, kind of, you know, I think that no code using that term is a way to get attention. But I believe and we believe at Xano and the broader kind of next generation no code community that these will just be the tools that people use to build software. And for us specifically, we're focused 100 percent on the back end. Right. So we're not trying to boil the ocean and build a complete product. But in this new world, you know, just like today, people have custom development stacks. They're going to have no code stacks because they're going to be opinionated on what tools they want to use. And we want to be the best possible back end for people to build on. So we've really been able to separate ourselves and be taken more seriously, even by traditional developers, by doing that. I had a guest on the other week and he was telling me that marketing to developers is very difficult because they're, I think in his words, he defined it as they're allergic to marketing and they can you know, <laughs> kind of see through fluff and, and see through bullshit. What's that like marketing to developers and what types of tactics and strategies do you see work? Yeah, so I think just basically, number one, having a freemium product where they can sign up, kick the tires and actually get value themselves. I think that's the first piece of it, just allowing them to have the most frictionless way to try your product. I think the second thing is just being really content and community heavy. So developers trust one another. And if they're trying to solve a problem right in your product, having a community of other developers, whether that be allowing them to showcase videos or having content to speak to their needs is very, very important. So we kind of believe in kind of community or content-led growth, which has really helped us speak to developers. I feel like that's become another trend I'm seeing a lot, at least on LinkedIn, is this idea of community-led growth. Everyone wants to have a community, it seems. What have you learned from building out this community? Yeah, so I don't think every product should kind of have this community growth le lever, but you have to understand for a tool like Xano, that is a horizontal tool, like just like when you think about JavaScript or a framework like uh, React, there's no ICP for that, right? You can be served and used for any different thing. But when you have a horizontal tool like that programming language or like Airtable or like a tool like Xano, you need to have a community of people to help one another and to help one another, not only to be successful in the product, but also to kind of highlight their accomplishments as well in what they're building. And so for us specifically, horizontal platform tool, community makes a lot of sense. I think not everyone can have the luxury of doing that if they're more of a point solution. And I read online that it's being used by 30,000 developers today. Is that right? Yeah, over 40,000 now, but yes. Wow, that's incredible. I'm sure founders listening in want to you know, see that type of growth and achieve that type of growth. What do you think as an organization you've gotten right? You know, again, I think that very early on, we have, especially being the type of tool that we are, we've made it really easy and accessible for people to find us and find success using the product by producing YouTube content, like very early on. So you'll see my face on a lot of videos and we just kind of kept up this cadence 
of posting one, two, three videos a week. And over time, you know, we launched officially in January of 21 after some development. It's just grown into this honeypot of value where developers can find it, even if they're using ancillary tools and then come to onboard onto the product. So I think that we got that piece of it right. This show is brought to you by Frontlines Media, a podcast production studio that helps B2B founders launch, manage, and grow their own podcast. Now, if you're a founder, you may be thinking, I don't have time to host a podcast. I've got a company to build. Well, that's exactly what we built our service to do. You show up and host, and we handle literally everything else. To set up a call to discuss launching your own podcast, visit frontlines.io slash podcast. Now, back to today's episode. I was playing around with your website last week and I did notice just how crisp, clear and and really clean the messaging is. Was it always that way? Did you always have messaging like this or what did it take to get to this point? No, not at all. I think we initially just said we're a fast, no code uh, backend building tool, which obviously has like hints of what we do and what we've got right. But over time, um, as it's no surprise to you, it's just a lot of customer conversations. And we also ran, you know, the kind of traditional superhuman Sean Ellis, like product market fit survey. Like if you couldn't live without this product or what would you do if this product went away? Very disappointed, somewhat disappointed or not disappointed at all. We also use the tool to basically collate and aggregate all of those answers. And then you see what the users are saying about your product. Where is the value, right? And more or time and time again, it was around scalability primarily and then security and compliance. So we shifted our messaging around that. And what are your views when it comes to category and subcategories? The primary category backend development and then the subcategory is no code or what are your thoughts there in general on category? Yeah, so I would say the broader category, sure, is kind of, you could say backend development. I would just say software creation in general. But I think there's a subcategory of, you know, this is obviously still being formed by us, but it's citizen developer led software creation, right? Where Twilio, for example, when they first started, it was non-consensus that developer led would be a thing. I think that we live in a world today where we are saying citizen developer led is going to be a thing. And a lot of people are like, what are you talking about? And so we're trying to really bolster this new category of product owners that will build the software they need at scale. I see on the website also, there's a lot of G2 banners. Can you talk to us about your strategy there with G2 and and generating reviews? Yeah, so for better or for worse, I'm not like a huge G2 subscriber, but there's a lot of organizations that go there to basically compare one tool against the other. And so we found that, you know, in the beginning, you kind of do the shotgun approach. You try all the different acquisition channels and marketing strategies. And we found that getting some of our customers to post their reviews, good or bad, on G2 was very helpful. And we see even in Google Analytics that being a strong acquisition channel for us and uh, even larger enterprise organizations that have like more potentially legacy CIOs will use that as a tool to just verify that you are liked in the market. And what about Gardner and Forrester? Is that also relevant or do you see G2 in these kind of more peer review marketplaces or where your customers are spending their time? I think Gartner and Forrester are definitely relevant, especially as we start going more up market. But I don't necessarily think that we've earned a place there yet or kind of like earned our place in one of the quadrants. I think that over time we will start to and then, you know, these like higher level CIOs will take us seriously. But for right now, these peer review ones seem to be working well for us. As you move further up market, what's like 
top of mind of like challenges that you're prepared for? You know, I think first of all, it's like a cultural objection that I think we have to overcome in that some CIOs and people within IT will say no code, no way. They, it doesn't really matter what they do. So how do you get them to see a new world of possibilities in enabling their stakeholders or their product owners to build software, you know, under their supervision? And I think uh, the second thing that will be kind of a challenge for us to overcome is that software creation, especially if you think about all the nuances that software requires, it's just difficult. You have to understand what it is to build a backend, an API, a database, all of those things. And it is our view that it is our responsibility to educate the next generation of software builders. And that's not necessarily easy. So those are the two things that I see. As I mentioned there in the intro, you've raised 5.4 million to date. What have you learned about fundraising throughout this journey? I mean, there's a lot that I could say about fundraising. I think first and foremost, we kind of had to ask ourselves like, hey, is this a problem that is venture scale? Like, is this something, a company that we really feel like could change a category and change the world? And once we came to that decision as co-founders, we then decided, hey, we want to take on venture money. And I just think that that alone is maybe a conversation that a lot of founders don't have. They just think it's the natural path of building a company. I think moving forward from there, just around fundraising, is that not all money is created equal, that the partner that is going to sit on your board, that is going to be contributing value you know, between rounds is very important. And I think that we did a really good job of having a lot of conversations. And I think oftentimes founders, you know, put money or a VC on a pedestal and not realizing that, you know, they're the ones that are going to be doing the hard work and that they should be also in many ways interviewing the VC around, hey, is this the right fit for what we're looking for? Not just the money, but what are you going to contribute? What value are, gonna, are you going to contribute to help me get to the next stage of growth or the next stage of fundraising? Now, let's imagine that you were starting the company again today from scratch. What would be the number one piece of advice that you'd give to yourself? You know, I was thinking about this and I actually am very happy with the decisions that we've made. I'm sure that someone that is smarter than me could come through and evaluate and said, hey, you did all of these things wrong. But I'm very happy that we've kind of approached things in a very measured way. We've been really capital efficient. We've really been engaged with our customers and we've taken things slow, right? And we've kind of always sought the truth in whatever decisions that we made. Final question for you. Let's zoom out three to five years into the future. What's the big picture vision that you're building? Yeah. So depending on who you ask, there are effectively 27 million developers in the world today of 8 billion people. That's less than half a percent of people to create software that all of us use. And everything that we touch today has some sort of software component. So we believe the more people you empower to build software, it's a boon for humanity. So our mission is to empower the world to create scalable world-class software and scalable and world-class is kind of highlighted because we want people to build without limits, build without constraints and kind of let their creativity run free. Amazing. I love the vision and I love the approach that you're taking to building. Now we are up on time, so we'll have to wrap here. If there's any founders that are listening in and just want to follow along with your journey as you build and execute on this vision, where should they go? Yeah. So I would say follow No Code Backend on Twitter and you can also find us on LinkedIn. Awesome. Prakash, thanks so much for taking the time to chat. Really enjoyed this and really appreciate you taking the time. Thank you, Brett. Keep in touch. <laughs>
This episode of Category Visionaries is brought to you by Frontlines Media, Silicon Valley's leading podcast production studio. If you're a B2B founder looking for help launching and growing your own podcast, visit frontlines.io slash podcast. And for the latest episode, search for Category Visionaries on your podcast platform of choice. Thanks for listening and we'll catch you on the next episode.